Hi, my name is Brian Isola. I have the pleasure of being one of the uh, youth workers here at Lakeside. I work with high school students. They are amazing, super energetic, and uh, always keeping me relevant and, you know, making sure that my aches and cracks and stuff are not keeping me down as I age. Um, hey, I also get the uh, privilege of leading our high school camp out, which is coming up June 27th, really soon. Anybody out here going, any adults going, raise your hand, be proud. Yes. One, two. All right. Well, uh, the rest of you, come out and talk to me afterward because I'd love to recruit you. We need as much help as possible. Um, as I mentioned, high school students are super energetic, and we need to be able to kind of keep them in place and in order, not lose any when we're on our trip. But uh, this year is going to be amazing. In fact, we have our early bird registration extended this weekend. It was supposed to cancel. It was supposed to go up on Friday, but we wanted to offer it one last weekend at the rate of $320 as opposed to $350, which is what it will be on Monday. So make sure if you are waiting to sign up your student, do it this weekend by midnight tonight as it will go up $30 more tomorrow. So last year, we invited this amazing speaker to come to camp out, and uh, his name is Josh Reebok. He, um, we, we saw his videos, we heard great things about him, and uh, we were super pumped to have him come and speak at our camp out 2015. And then he went and arm wrestled a guy, and how many people have seen Over the Top with, with Sylvester Stallone? You, that, that's what happened to his arm, and he was unable to come out. So, um, so we invited him again, we're like, you know, we know you totally flaked on us last year. But uh, we want you to come back, and so today is a preview. Uh, we have Josh Reebok here to speak to us this morning, so you guys welcome him up. Right. Good morning. I don't know who said that, but I love the sound of your voice. Hmm. The lights were bright. I couldn't see a thing. I was beginning to sweat, beginning to sway, nervous, heart banging against my bones like a caged and frantic bird, lights bearing down on me, thousand eyes bearing down on me. I was supposed to be saying something, but I'd forgotten all the words. I was a little boy when my mom volunteered me for the church Christmas pageant. And the powers that be in their infinite wisdom decided that I was most fit to deliver the opening address. I was tasked with, in just a few words, captivating 500 minds, the imaginations of an entire auditorium. I, as a six-year-old boy, was meant to draw them into the festivities to follow. And they made it simple enough for me. They only gave me one line, so few words. Here's the line I was supposed to say on Christmas Eve. I was supposed to say... I'm not very tall, but I welcome you all. See? Rhymes. So they made it as, as easy as can be, and yet it took me all six weeks to memorize this thing, and I worked hard, waking up, laying in my Empire Strikes Back bedsheets, rehearsing this line, eating my cereal, rehearsing this line, brushing my teeth at night before crawling back into bed, rehearsing this line, until finally... Christmas Eve arrives. I have this line locked and ready. And so evening approaches and my mom gets me dressed in my classic 
early mid-80s little boy formal gear. So I have on my khaki pants with the elastic waistband. I have on a clip-on bow tie. My bowl haircut is bowling across my forehead. And the keystone item of this just wonderful fashion statement is I'm wearing a navy blue blazer with brass buttons, giving the impression that I'm commanding some kind of naval vessel or something. So I arrive in the auditorium, it fills up, you hear the footsteps, the sounds of people dropping into their seats. I walk up on stage, the line is there, and then right when my mouth opens to deliver these profound and enticing words, they just evaporate right from my brain. And so now I'm standing on stage, I'm beginning to sweat, beginning to sway, nervous, heart banging against my bones like a caged and frantic bird. And this is the first moment in my life when I, when I encountered a particular emotion that we've probably all encountered before. This is the first moment in my life when I remember encountering shame. I went six years before I encountered shame, before I even knew that it existed. I don't know if I've gone six days since. And so I'm standing there in front of all these people, having forgotten the words. Now, for those of us that don't know, I, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's two kinds of forgetting. Type A forgetting is where the words, though they have drifted away for a moment, are going to shortly boomerang their way back into your mind, and you're going to be able to say them. But then there's type B forgetting. This is the type of forgetting where the words have kind of made a collective decision to migrate permanently to a different mind, and they are never coming back. So I realized fairly quickly while standing on the stage that I'm dealing with type B, and so that shame begins to grow and grow inside me. And then for the first time, on top of the shame, I remember feeling insecure. For the first time, I remember knowing what it was like to feel as if I was letting people down, not just those who loved me and those whom I loved, but perfect strangers that I had never Never even met. And this, this entire experience is now beginning to swallow me up in front of 500 witnesses. And, there, and, and, and the worst thing of all, the worst thing of all was knowing that there was nothing I could do. I mean, I'm just kind of helpless in front of all these people. And I hear that first person out in the darkness beginning to laugh. And then I hear another person laugh. And the laughter begins to swell until this man in the front row, kind of right where y'all are sitting, this man rises up like a mountain from his chair. He's so tall that his head actually blocks out the stage lights. So now it's like this human eclipse is bearing down on young Josh. This man comes towards me, and I don't recognize him. The way the lights are configured, I see him only in silhouette until he gets within about a foot of, of where I am standing. And what signaled me to who this man was was actually not the sight of him. It was the smell of him. I smelled English leather cologne, which told me immediately, this is my father. So he gets within about a foot of me. And then finally his face comes into view, and I just see my dad, who was six foot four and about 240 pounds. I just see him wink, this really, really tender wink. And then my dad, who is six foot four and 240 pounds, he kneels on the stage and shuffles up alongside me, and he extends his arm, now facing the crowd beside me, and embraces me. And in this very, very deep, gravelly, barbaric voice says, I'm not very tall, but I welcome you all. 
And I mean, you know, the, the, roof, the roof went off the place. I mean, everyone's cheering, everyone's applauding. There was kind of this impromptu moment of euphoria, you know, from front pew to back. And, and if I were to guess why, I think part of it was because people know they got to see kind of this spontaneous interaction between a father and son that kind of captivated what we all want Christmas to be about. But I think if I were to peel that layer and go a little bit deeper, I think everyone was so excited and everyone was so moved because they knew they were seeing a moment when a father was doing for his son what the son could not do for himself. I think everyone knew my dad didn't have to get up out of that pew. He didn't have to come up on stage. He didn't have to kneel down beside me. He didn't have to turn around and face everyone. My dad didn't have to say that line on my behalf. In fact, my dad didn't even have to have that line memorized. And the fact that he did indicated some kind of involvement in the life of his child over the preceding weeks. And that moment solidified in this audience and for me as well what I had already known. And that's that my dad was every bit my hero. Now I understand that in a room this size, we all can't echo that same sentiment. But at that point in my life, my dad was my hero. I mean, my dad was this architect of my life. I mean, he built me up with his words. He built me up with his love. He built me up with his encouragement. And that moment just reminded me, yes, this man is my hero. Now, let's fast forward six months from that night. We get into the month of May, and my family is preparing to go to a birthday party for my friend's parents. And so my mom is going to take my older sister and younger sister, and they're going to go in our gray van, and my dad and I are going to catch up in about 30 minutes, which for me is thrilling because this means I get 30 minutes alone with my dad. And typically, when my dad and I were alone, he was at his, his most entertaining best. I mean, it was like a vaudevillian show from the time the door shut, and it was just us. I mean, he sang, he told jokes. I mean, he was, he was wacky, he was off the wall. So I'm thrilled. And so my dad comes up to me, all six foot four, 240 pounds of him, and he says, son, sit down, watch television, play video games, I'll let you know when it's time to go. And so I say, okay, great. And I start playing Nintendo, and I'm, I'm close enough to the screen where you can't even see the characters and the figures. You only see those 10 million little pixels. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm playing video games, and I hear my dad rise up out of that lazy boy chair that every father on the planet seems to own. And I hear his six foot four, 240 pound body go crushing over the carpet of the living room and into the kitchen. And then I hear that suctioning sound of the refrigerator open. And then I hear it suction closed. I hear my dad's feet going behind me. He drops into his lazy boy chair. And then I hear him slam this big case of beer on the table next to him. And I hear him tear that cardboard open. And I hear that first unmistakable sound of a beer can opening. And I, as I stare at the television at those 10 million pixels, I don't hear my dad drink this beer as if someone who needs a moment of refreshment, I hear him drain this beer down as if his life depends on it and he finishes it. I hear him crush the can and then I hear immediately after for the second time that sound of a beer can opening and my dad drinks it and then I hear a third can open and a fourth can open and I hear a fifth can open and I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to pretend that what's going on is not going on. And so I stare into these pixels and I hear another can open and another and another and another until finally I turn around and I see that my dad's feet are just surrounded in crushed beer cans. The case is empty and now my father, who is six foot four 
in 240 pounds is stumbling towards me. And just like he had on that stage, he got within about a foot or two of me. And this time, I didn't smell English leather cologne. This time, I just smelled that sour storm of his drunken breath. And my dad starts kind of clumsily pawing at my shoulder. And I can see in his eyes, I can see like with such clarity in his eyes that he thinks the words he is saying are coming out crystal clear. But really, it's just pure gibberish unintelligible, every vowel, every syllable, but I can gather from his, his hand motions that he's telling me it's time to get up and to go to this party. And so I, I get onto my feet and he shepherds me out the front door and down the steps and he kind of forcibly and awkwardly stuffs me into the passenger seat and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't buckle my seatbelt. You know, it's so strange how sometimes it's these, it's these tiny, almost innocuous moments that just, that just break our hearts and for whatever reason, the fact that my dad didn't buckle my seatbelt still, you know, three decades later, still just breaks my heart. And so as he stumbles around the hood of the car, one hand stabilizing himself, I, I buckle my seatbelt until finally he drops into the seat of our maroon station wagon. The engine fires up. We back out of the driveway and off my dad and I go to this party. At the time... Uh, we were living outside Chicago, probably about an hour outside Chicago, and, and really based on where we were, though we were fairly close to a major city, it was a rural environment, which means there are no street lights, and if you don't have the illumination of the moon, it's really total darkness just for miles around you, which means if you don't really have your wits on these windy roads, it can turn out poorly. And my dad is swerving back and forth. I was so accustomed to him on our drive singing, making me laugh. But instead he was just rambling on to himself as if he was talking to all these ghosts that I couldn't even see. He's crossing the middle line over onto the shoulder. You hear the click, click, click under the tires until finally we reached a curve that his senses were just too dulled to make. We flew off the road. We went over this broad patch of grass and we smashed into this fence. It just exploded. I mean, flying past the car like wooden asteroids as we went barreling into this cornfield. At that point, all I could do was close my eyes and clench this little piece of canvas as we went further and further. I opened my eyes periodically and I could just see the corn stalks flying by the window until finally we crashed into this large mound of dirt. A moment later, I opened my eyes and I saw my dad, my hero, passed out drunk over the steering wheel. And I remember thinking, what happened to my dad? He's, he's my hero, right? What happened to my dad and when did he suddenly become this horrible, horrible monster? And that question and some form of that question really, really has chased me. For so long since, it was two decades of me wrestling with this question of which one of those, of those episodes that I just told is a more accurate representation of my dad. Was my dad this loving, kind, self-controlled, compassionate, creative hero? Or was he this drunk, often belligerent monster? Which one was my dad? I find that as human beings, we kind of get obsessed with doing this with a lot of people. We want to be able to label people and identify people, say this person's good, this person's bad. This person's on the light side, this person's on the dark side. And what I continue to be reminded of the older I get is that it's rarely that simple or clean that life and human beings are much more complicated than that. 
that I really think it's hard to find someone who's good or bad, that most often people are good and bad, and it's no different with my dad. It took me 20 years to realize my dad wasn't a hero or a monster. My dad was a hero and a monster. My dad dealt with You know, what all human beings deal with, this sense of inner conflict, the daily collision of who we are and who we want to become, of the things we've been running away from and the things we're trying to run towards. I mean, my dad is a man like all men, like all women, that is created with the thumbprints of good and yet simultaneously armed with the claws and potential for complete destruction. And though that conflict may look different in every single one of us, though it may not be as obvious to the naked eye or dramatic, that that conflict exists in all of us, every single one of us, even the people that we admire most. The second half of the Bible, the New Testament, it's largely written by an individual named Paul. And Paul was this kind of, you know, achieving, respected individual of all kinds of industries, He had achieved in business, he had achieved in philosophy, he eventually achieved high things even in religion. And Paul eventually, he writes this letter. He writes this letter to a group of people in Rome, and the first six chapters are are Paul in brilliant and eloquent fashion, just unraveling these, these mysteries and questions that have plagued scholars and theologians for centuries. It's Paul saying, oh, you don't get that? All right, in seven words, I'm gonna break it down. And he does. And then all of a sudden you arrive at Romans chapter 7. And if you're an artist or a writer, you can probably sense this. He arrives in Romans chapter 7 and all of a sudden it's like the energy in his pen changes. It's like there's this kind of frantic coursing of blood through his arm. Because after all this eloquent writing, Paul gets to Romans 7 and then he writes this. I don't understand myself. Because the things I want to do, I don't do. And all of the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing every single one of those things. It's like thousands of years ago, Paul is writing, if we were to translate it into the language I'm using now, it's like thousands of years ago. Paul, who is so respected, says, I am a hero I am a monster, and I don't know which one is going to come out when. It existed in Paul, it existed in my dad, and I promise you, it exists in me. Like Brian said, my name is Josh Reebok. I live in New York City with my wonderful wife of 10 years. Uh, By trade, I, I write books for a living, and sometimes I wake up and I believe in God. And then a lot of times I wake up and I wonder if I've just invented this whole thing as a, as a crutch suitable to help me survive the next 24 hours. Sometimes I pray, and I don't know where it comes from, but I just have this, this confidence, not only that God exists, but that God is listening and that God cares. And then other times I pray and I feel like I'm doing nothing more than slinging my words up where they rattle against the ceiling and then ricochet down into my hands like cold stones. Sometimes I'm courageous. And then sometimes in the same hour, I am such a coward. I can be just as, as, as just as I am judgmental. I am equal parts, love, liar, and lust. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I, I enjoy being me. And I'm proud of the man that I am and, the, and proud of the man that I am becoming. And then other times I look in that exact same mirror and I feel like there's no amount of money I wouldn't give to be somebody else for just one day. 
Sometimes I look into the face of my wonderful, amazing wife, and I don't know how it happened, but there's a smile on her face, and I know I put it there. And then sometimes before that same date ends, there are tears coming down her cheeks, and I don't know what I did, but I know, I know that I'm the one that put them there. Like Paul, like my dad, I'm a hero, I'm a monster, and it is such an honor to be with you here this morning. If we were to translate my soul and psyche into poetry, it might sound something like this. Standing rigid on pews, creaking within my chest, I've got a choir of robed urchins squealing stale hymns about the books I should like, who I should admire, who I ought to be, and who should admire me. Hijackers in halos, they strip me of my beliefs and replace them with the overstuffed, overpuffed rhetoric of cold souls wandering. Souls who've never set foot inside my home or inside my bones, but I have. Day after day, I wander and sort through endless piles stacked high across my heart, but I'm not sure any of these files belong to me anymore. Someone else's head staked wooden atop my shoulders. I know what I'm supposed to think, but can't remember the last time that I thought for myself. If I do, will you lock me up? And if I don't, aren't I locking myself up? When did disagreement become criminal? And what's the sentence for not seeing it your way? Most opinions deserve to be forgotten. Most butchers masquerade as beauties. And honesty is often an outlawed language. Not all angels wear white. Not all devils have horns. And not all mistakes should be avoided. Because struggle is where church really happens. And imagination calls us into the places that our past warned us not to go. So isn't it time that I open some of these doors? I knock and I knock and I knock, but no one seems to answer. Perhaps I don't know the right question. Perhaps I'm too stupid. Perhaps you don't care. I wonder, is anybody up there really listening? Am I not shouting loud enough? Or can my tongue not enunciate proper the magical words? Love is a hint of heaven, but sometimes it feels more like a tease. Pitchforks and perfection, messengers, maniacs, and miracles, dueling maestros. I've seen God, seen the devil, and I'm not always sure which is which. So am I visually impaired? Or do those two often appear more similar than I care to admit? So that's me. And my response to that, what I want to do, even right now with you all, is I want to hide it. I don't want you to see it. I don't want to see it. I want to ignore it. I want to pretend it's not there. I want to forsake the person that I am and instead trot out into the world around me a persona, this Photoshop perfected being that I think will allow me to belong in this very, very strange and wild world. And so I pretend. People ask me how I am and I say I'm fine. People ask me about finances and career and marriage and faith and how I feel about myself and I give them the answer that I think I'm supposed to say. And so I pretend, pretend, pretend until finally this phenomenon happens where I'll wake up and I roll out of bed and I set my feet down, but rather than feeling as if I'm setting my feet down on the floor, it feels like I'm setting my feet down on a stage. Then I get up and I go to my closet I take out a couple items, and then rather than feeling as if I'm putting on clothes, it feels like I'm putting on a costume. 
And then I sit down with my wife, my sisters, my friends, my bartender, my barista. And rather than feeling as if I'm having a conversation, I feel like I'm reciting lines from a script. I have essentially pretended away the very man I am and chosen instead to be something that doesn't even exist. I choose to hide. I have this friend named Brian. And Brian uh, works at this very prestigious university in Chicago. And so when you go into his office, he has this oversized diploma hanging above his oak desk. It's extremely intimidating, especially for someone who doesn't have anything hanging on his walls and has no desk. And so every time I'm with Brian, though, we have, these, we have these amazing conversations. And about a year and a half ago, I was in Chicago in the, the sunny and balmy month of February. And Brian and I decided to get some dinner. It was really late. It was about midnight. And so we had this brief conversation. I said, well, Brian, you know, there's basically in Chicago three food groups. You got your steak food group. You got your hot dog food group. You got your pizza food group. So which is it going to be? And he said, well, I'm really trying to eat healthy. And I said, okay, well, steak it is. And so Brian and I... We walk through, you know, the frosted snow of Chicago, you know, fire hydrants just dripping with this kind of strange drool of ice. And we cross through the city and we finally arrive at this restaurant that's actually located underneath the street. And so you walk down this iron staircase, spiraling as if you're tunneling into the center of the earth. We get down to the bottom. You open this creaking iron door and you step into this tiny brick room, completely lit by candlelight, as if John Gotti and Al Capone are going to be dining alongside you. And so we go in and we're ushered by the waitress into this corner booth. We sit down, both of us. We order, you know, the largest steaks legal in the state of Illinois. We sit down, napkins in our shirt, and we just devour these things as, as if, you know, we are dining with William Wallace or something like that. We reach the end of our meal, and Brian tears his napkin, now covered in the carnage of steak juice, out of his shirt, and that is kind of juxtaposed against the fact that he's wearing this fine jacket with a pocket square with, you know, elbow patches right here. And so he tears Tears out the napkin, sets it down, slides the plate aside, leans into the middle, candle beneath his chin, flickering on his face as if he's telling me a ghost story over a campfire. And Brian looks at me and he says, Josh, I'm 40 years old. And more than anything, you know what I want on a daily basis? I said, no, Brian, what's that? And he looks at me and Brian says, Josh, every day, more than anything, I just want one moment. I just want one moment where I can let somebody into who I really am. And I just want one moment where in turn that person would welcome me into who they really are. What Brian was essentially voicing is what so often echoes inside my chest. He just wants permission. He just wants the freedom to stop hiding. And interestingly enough, and this is the last story I'll tell you this morning, this is one of the very first freedoms that God gives to humanity. The book of Genesis is the first book. I mean, the Bible's like 13 million pages, but this is like the first set of pages. And in the beginning of that particular book, God, we are introduced to God as this artist. God as this creator. Out of darkness, he decides to make universes. He decides to make a world. And so he sets this strange yellow lantern up in the sky, burning down to heat the people that walk beneath it. He makes the moon blue dish. Beside it, fluorescent forest of stars, shining in constellations, bears, dippers, soldiers. 
Then God decides to make an earth atop it. He puts mountains all wearing white caps. And then God decides that there's going to be this interaction of temperature between the sun and these white caps. And when they interact, that these white caps are going to melt down and form something called water. And then God decides, wouldn't it be amazing, though, if we could experience that not only with sight but with sound. And so I'm going to invent sound so that when this water comes down, it will trickle and form rivers that will babble while inside of them grow algae and swim back and forth eels and fish and then around them I'm going to put trees and the wind will blow through them and animals will climb up and down them and leaves come fall will descend down red as if lava is dripping down and then I'm going to put animals around them some that crawl some above them that fly and then God decides in the middle of this absolutely incredible world that he is going to make two people to enjoy it he makes Adam And he makes Eve. And not only do they get to enjoy the world, they get to enjoy perfect intimacy with God where hiding did not exist, where the need to pretend did not exist, where people were fully seen by each other, fully seen by God and able to look fully upon even God himself. And God says, you are free to enjoy this world. And Adam and Eve do, but God does give them a warning. He says, listen, Right now, you have total fulfillment. Right now, you, you are free of shame. You are free of hatred. You are free of insecurity. You are free of all the things that, that could so easily plague the human heart. But if you eat of this tree at the end of this world, the moment you eat of that, you will then invite into your soul the very things that you will spend the rest of your life trying to break free of. God essentially says, if you eat of this tree, you will then spend the rest of your life just trying to reclaim what you already have right now. And so Adam and Eve say, okay, check. We got it. But then one day, this happy couple goes wandering out into the far end. And the way the sun is coming down through the tree branches that day, the fruit of this dangerous tree is shining, the red bobbing there in the end of the branch like a giant ruby. And Eve reaches up. She pulls the fruit down, takes a bite, hands it to Adam. And as the juices are still dripping off Eve's chin, Adam takes a bite. And that's the moment, that's the moment when them, when they experience for the first time what I experienced on a stage for the first time They experienced shame. What I experienced on that stage as a six-year-old boy when I experienced shame, insecurity, wanting to disappear and never be seen again, Adam and Eve experienced for the first time. Their hearts are flooded with all these things that flood our hearts every single day. And what do they do? They respond exactly how I do on a daily basis. Adam and Eve, when confronted with the hero and monster in themselves for the first time, Adam and Eve hide. They run into the trees, they run behind these shrubs, and they begin covering not just really their naked bodies, but they they, they cover their naked souls. It's like they cannot stand the sight of themselves. It's like they cannot stand the sight that they're not perfect. They cannot stand the idea that they are not angelic, armed with wings and harps. They cannot stand that they are human beings. And so they they huddle up in these bushes and they sit there and I can just imagine the cylinders in their minds turning like mine do so often thinking, what have I done? What have I done? How can I ever look my mom in the face again? How could I ever look my boss in the face again? How could I ever look my spouse, my son, my daughter? How could I ever look myself in the face again? How could I ever look God in the face again? And they sit there just crippled, crippled, crippled. Helpless, 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 hiding until the larger, 
than six foot four, larger than 240 pound feet of God come crushing over the carpet of Eden's grass. And God reaches this far into the garden. He turns to his left and he doesn't see Adam and Eve. And he turns to his right and he doesn't see Adam and Eve. And then God calls out what is the second question in the entire Bible. I'm a writer, so I geek out on punctuation. So if you get into punctuation too, I'm your man. This is the second question mark in the entire Bible. The second question ever asked. And this is actually the first question that God ever asks. God stands in the the middle of this place. Adam and Eve nowhere in sight. And I'll tell you what he does not ask. God does not say, how could you? He does not say, what were you thinking or how dare you? God stands in the middle of this paradise and he calls out, where are you? Where are you? Now, I'm wrong quite a bit. So if I'm wrong in the, in the subsequent seconds, it will not be the first time. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an assumption here. I'm guessing that when God calls out to Adam and Eve, where are you? He's not asking them to disclose their geographic location in the midst of this world that he's created. I mean, he did make every shadow and blade of grass. I think he probably knows exactly where they are. I think when God says, where are you? He's not saying, okay, Adam and Eve, okay, uh, latitude and longitude, give me your intersection. I'm really having a hard time finding you, even though I have an inner compass that's kind of like completely perfect. I have have the tendency to think that when God calls out this question, he's not saying, where are you with your skin? But more, where are you with your soul? Where are you right here, right now? Where are you right here, right now? What is so bad that you would feel the need to hide? What is so bad that you would feel like you have to hide from the being you were made to live in perfect intimacy with? What is so bad And so God calls out, where are you? And it's like in doing so, he's inviting them to come out of hiding. Where are you? Where are you? Come on out. It's like God is saying, you never have to hide with me. It's like God is trumpeting to Adam and Eve then and to all of us all these years later. It's like God is trumpeting. It is never holier to hide. It's like God is saying, grace means you never have to hide It's like God is saying, where are you? I am inviting you not to leave your humanity in the trees and come to me, but to bring the fullness of the hero and monster, all your humanity, to bring the fullness of your humanity into the fullness of my divinity. Where are you? And as we close, I can't help but wonder that if what God, what we would say to God if he were to walk up to us this morning and ask that same question. If God were to walk up to you this morning and say, hey, where are you? What would you say? And if you're like me, you probably have to ask not what would you say, but what should you say? Because even a lot of times with God, I say, yeah, God, I'm good. Oh, yeah, joy. I'm happy. (laughs) If he asked you that question, what would you say? Because for some of us, the honest answer, what we should say is, God, I'm furious. I'm furious. I'm furious with my friend. I'm furious with my family. God, I'm so furious with myself. For some of us, the honest answer, the way for us to come out of the bushes would be to say, God, I'm furious with you. And I'm not saying I have any right to be. I'm just telling you that I am. I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel like everybody else 
has a kind of joy that I can't seem to touch. I am furious with you. And I understand very little about God, but I think one thing I do understand is that's probably the moment when God receives most joy. We say, God, I'm furious with you. And he says, come on out. Come here. Come on out. For some of us, the honest answer would be, God, I'm hollow. God, I feel empty. For some of us, the honest answer would be, God, I have joy. Things are really good. I'm excited. I've got these new things going on. My relationships are great. And God says, come on out. That's great. I celebrate too. I'm really good at celebrating. Come here. For some of us, the honest answer would be, God, I feel numb. For some of us, the answer would be, God, I'm so busy. I'm running all the time. I don't even know how to answer that question because I haven't paused to be introspective to even know where I am. I don't even know. For some of us, the honest answer would be, God, I can't even contemplate having this conversation because I don't even think you're real. And that's when God says, great. I talk about that too. Come here. We're all heroes and monsters. God invites my dad out of the bushes. God invites Paul out of the bushes. God invites me out of the bushes. No matter where you are this morning, he invites you to stop hiding. Where are you? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful, wonderful California morning. Thank you for this community. Uh, God, I am so grateful that in a world that so often bullies us into the bushes, that torments us into the trees. You are the one telling us you never need to hide. God, help us to uh, become people of honesty. God, I know that, that the church is meant to be a place where we are free to be honest, free to be flawed. Help us, God, to not only be open with you and with one another, but God, to also give people the freedom and grace to come out on their own. In your name, amen.